0: I'm Steve Backshall, and you're listening to The Aussie Wildlife Show.
1: Alright guys, welcome to The Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here of course with Steve. G'day guys. And we're very lucky to be here today with Kristen Messenger from Bugs and Slugs. Welcome Chris.
2: Ah, hey, hey.
1: Repeat person. Yeah, repeat offender. First woman, and... Yeah, you were the first, yes. the first. You always remember your first. Yeah, <laughs> And it was the longest podcast I, for a long time too, wasn't I it? I can't remember. Yes, it was.
0: It was long.
2: Yeah, well, count yourselves lucky.
1: <laughs> Fritz, what have you got for us today?
2: So I've just done a, a thing for a feast festival. I did a show called Buggery the very queer sex lives of Bugs and Slugs, and it uh, went down very well, so I thought it would be a good thing to have a chat about in this forum here.
0: So sorry to our listeners for what's
2: coming up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, not really, because, you know, like, the main reason I came up with that idea to do at Feast, as you know, Feast is the gay and lesbian, or the queer festival, and um, I think... As humans, as vertebrate humans, we're quite heavily invested in the idea that the way reproduction happens is that you have male of the species and a female of the species and they engage in copulation in a very sort of vanillary hetero sort of way, and that may result in a progeny. Okay, thanks for listening. (laughs) So I guess we are quite heteronormative in our views around how that stuff happens. And and so in Australia, you know, we were all subjected to this outrageous, you know, marriage equality debate and all this sort of hoo-ha around whether same-sex couples should be allowed to marry or allowed to um, have children or, you know, all all of that, which um, just blew my tiny little mind because that kind of hetero sort of behaviour, you don't have to delve too deeply into the animal kingdom to leave that well behind. And so that's why I wanted to do the the thing for Feast is because, you know, I, I really wanted to open people's eyes to the idea that there are all kinds of ways to reproduce and that if you... Um, if you get too caught up in the idea that you have to have a male and a female, and they have to, you know, they have to have um, sex in the missionary position to um, produce a child that then exits your body via your vagina. Which is, frankly, what's always put me off about f- the whole I thing. I think I apologise yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, to you, just, uh, keep, the, keep that line close to your uh, microphone. Um, yeah, so you know, and that per- personally, that's always put me off the whole the whole reproduction thing. But because um, they do, if you're a human, they come out of your vagina only and after
1: you're married, folks. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's right. And um, it, yeah, in the eyes of Mum. God, and. Um, <laughs> And people at that point, people go, oh, no, no, that you can have a caesarean. But I, I'm not sure that either of those things really appeal to me. Like, you know, it can either hack it out of you or you can knock it out through your vagina. So um, if you start looking, sorry. Sorry,
0: my, my wife would be fainted now on the floor after that little little chat.
2: <laughs> yeah, is that too real? No, no, that's cool. Are we keeping it too real?
1: <clears throat> no, you keep it Cause, real. Because,
2: you know, I, I like to keep it real.
1: Human childbirth is horrible. That our heads are too big.
2: Well, I've not done it because it. I saw that. a cow do it once when I was quite young. Give you birth to a
0: human. Can, can you say that, Adrian? What's I that?
1: don't know. What's that? I've, I've seen it. I've been in the room and it's happened.
2: Yeah, I'd probably stay out of that. Looks
1: painful. Yeah. You get a lot of it abuse. It, mm. I'm okay. Don't worry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You've recovered. But yeah, I, yeah no, I saw a cow give birth when I was quite young and... Um, it didn't really look like. I, fortunately, I spent a lot of time on a dairy farm as a kid, and the the farmer who I'm still, you know, dear friends with to this day, he was very um, he was very practical and very honest about these things. And this cow had a prolapse, which is pretty gruesome. That's when you you know you don't stop pushing, and your uterus actually um, comes out of your vagina, basically. I'm going to say vagina <laughs> a few more times and then we'll leave it behind. And then your
0: kids can come and listen.
2: <laughs> yeah, but this cow prolapsed and it was not very pleasant. It didn't look pleasant. And I asked all these questions. As you can imagine, I was quite a questioning child. And I said, wow, you know, is that, how, how does it happen when people do it? And he kind of went, well, it happens like that only, you know. I said, but you, you don't prolapse. And he said, well, you can you know, you, you can prolapse and, um, and it's pretty hideous. Like they, you know, put it all back together and stitch it up and, and that's kind of what they do if a human prolapses is really not, not ideal. And I, that was about the time I thought, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's not for me. Mm. <laughs> Why will you be doing that. <laughs> you can have that.
1: It's not um, for me. It's a tough gig. Yeah. It's, <laughs> From it's... what I've heard and seen.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, I'm glad it's not for me. I think there's probably enough people on the planet. Um, so yeah, so I, I want to um, think a little bit less about how humans do it, and a bit more about how um, certainly some of the invertebrates do it because they Thank have. For that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay, can bring the kids back now. <laughs> <laughs> She's finished
2: saying but uh, oh, You can come back in. <laughs> you can cut it all out afterwards. No. You, you can edit it. <laughs> you, you can make me say punani or something like that. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> So I think, you know, the insects have really got it, not just the insects, the invertebrates in general have got it all over us in terms of not just the way they mate and reproduce, but the way they, you know, the way they don't mate in order to reproduce as well.
1: Well, it's just amazing that there's like so many different ways a baby can be made throughout all the, however many millions of species there are on the planet, there's almost that many ways that a baby can be made.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing is that it generally is about making, you know, we are biologically driven to reproduce, except for me, because I'm a bit broken. But yeah, apart from me, we're biologically driven to reproduce. So it's it's no surprise that whether you're gay or straight or a horse, you might want to reproduce. So let's get down to how things reproduce. So a really common argument i guess if you start talking about this stuff you'll get people who will start saying oh yeah but you still need a male and you still need a female but actually you don't so there's a whole heap of um invertebrate animals that are parthenogenetic so um you know what that means yep Mm -hmm. because you would come across that in some of the reptiles yeah Yep, so yeah, I think sure. there's reptiles yep. that are, can, can do that yeah. too. Yeah. Yep, so um, so parthenogenesis is when you can reproduce a genetically identical offspring without actually mating with a male. And so there are, um, I guess the stick insects are really well known for their parthenogenetic um, abilities, but there's a whole heap of um, invertebrates that do it, like katydids are really commonly parthenogenetic as well so um and often that doesn't mean that there are no males so some of the stick insects though it does mean that so there are species of stick insects where there are no males that actually exist in that species they're entirely female species but for most stick insects there are females and males but as you can imagine if you're a female stick insect and you're quite gravid and heavy and you're sitting at the top of a really big tree and maybe there's been a massive fire that's gone through and you're in quite an isolated situation and it's not possible for males to get to you you don't fly there's very few female stick insects there's a few little ones where the females fly like some of the Cipoloideas and stuff they the females and the males fly but with things like spiny leaf insects or the the local species around here the tropida and the tenomorpha, the margin wing stick insects, the females don't fly. Their wings have been reduced to little stumps. So it's very difficult for a male, you know, to get to them at the best of times. He's still got to track them down and look them up in his little black book. So if they've been isolated geographically by fire or drought or, you know, deforestation, whatever can make that happen, or they've just been blown a, a long way away and there are no other... Males in that vicinity, or whatever.
1: And let's be honest, they're not easy to find.
2: They're not easy to find, yeah. no. no they um, but, but they, of course, do use pheromones and they have a scent that is often quite discernible, even to us. Mm. So, spiny leaf insects, you'll notice that they have a smell that almost smells quite sweet, like honey, or those phylum leaf insects, the yeah, flat the green ones. Do, yeah. yeah, they smell like dirty socks and old yeah, cheese. It's not and nice. Yeah, it's really full on. And so sometimes they use that as a defensive you know, threat displays. But I suspect that sometimes they use it to attract a mate as well. And there's probably other scents that we don't smell, like pheromones that we can't smell that they're producing all the time. So if a male can't actually get to them, then they can reproduce parthenogenetically. And that means they just start laying eggs and those eggs develop and hatch into a genetically identical clone of the female that produced them.
0: But they're all then... So they're all female. They're
2: all gonna be female. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why there are you know, that you can imagine that if if there was a population that was absolutely smashed by fire and only a few individuals were left or a handful of individuals were left and they were all female, that population would very quickly become a female only population. And there's sometimes issues with that. Like you ideally I guess you probably want some fresh genetics, you know, to jump in at some point but yeah so that so they can go for a good six generations before they really need to think about what's going on and you know change up their gene pool a bit and you find that with most inverts you can you know maintain a gene pool in captivity for about six generations and then you kind of need to introduce new genes i don't know whether that's the same for vertebrates but Is-
0: it's strange with reptiles, I think, because, like, a clutch of snake eggs are almost to the point of all of those babies in those clutches are almost quite unrelated. Yeah, um, yeah. Or certainly not very closely related sort of thing. So I don't really know how it works.
2: And I, Well, it could that be I'm that not, they're not related. It know? could be that a female mates with a number of males. So mm-hmm. the, I, I only learnt this really recently, which is kind of embarrassing because I've been obsessed with animals my whole life. But... Um, a friend of mine told me that his dog um, had a litter of puppies and they were all completely different. Like one was clearly, so she was a Kelpie, the dog, and um, but the puppies, one had clearly been sired by a corgi, one was clearly like a poodle, one was, you know, and there was like four different fathers. And I didn't believe him. I just went, come on, that can't happen. And he said, no, no. She was backing herself up to a gap in the fence and just <laughs> passes passing by, dogs wandering around at night were having their wicked way with her and she produced these puppies that were all different. And I had to go home and Google whether a litter of puppies can actually have different mm. sires snakes and can. they can.
0: Yeah, snakes can.
2: I they was can have blown multiple. away by that. Yeah, snakes can have multiple sires. Yeah, so in one, yeah. so in one litter of yep. um, puppies or in one clutch mm. of um, yep. pythons, they, they could they easily have different parentage. Which makes sense, I guess.
0: Yeah, it sort of does, doesn't it? You don't think of things like that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that Like stick insects I've known for years, you you only need a female and then you'll get babies. And that they'll all be female. But a lot of people almost look on that and go, well, that's great because then I'll get babies off those females and they're all going to be females. I never need a male. But in actual fact, it's not really that great.
2: Yeah, genetically, look, there are some species that have overcome it. But genetically you you want genetic robustness and that's always going to come from interbreeding It's it's sort of like you know if you've got a dog and it's got a bit of mongrel in it i don't use that word anymore what do they use like bitzer if it's got a bit of a mix in it it'll often be genetically you know it might be a golden retriever that would get hip dysplasia but if it's got a bit of labrador it maybe less prone to hip dysplasia that that sort of thing Mm. so those kind of genes can help but the other side is also true that for stick insects if you mate a stick insect with a male and you get sexually reproduced eggs so obviously parthenogenesis is asexual if you mate a stick insect with a female and you get uh, with a male sorry and you get sexually produced eggs then about 85 percent of those offspring will be male so male you heavy. you tend to get a huge yeah it'll be very male heavy, mm. um, and then there are some species. I breed a species called Acrophila titan, and they're quite a large stick insect. For for some time we thought they were you know probably the biggest in Australia, but now they've been surpassed by the gargantuan. But they're they're a big stick insect and. They, 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 they seem to have a way of controlling their hatch rates so that you tend to get a spate of hatching and all those that have hatched will be male and then four months later you get a spate of hatching and all those will be female and that seems to stop all those brothers and sisters maturing at the same time because the males mature much quicker um, and the females are much slower to mature so it sort of seems to stop them interbreeding
1: it's interesting the different cues that make the sex ratios, like there's temperature with some of the reptiles. Mm. I wonder if there's anything like mammals, because a few times I've bred dunnarts, and like a few years back now I bred one female dunnart had seven joeys. Sorry, Chris, I know you're not interested in this. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I did my year 12 biology project on dunnarts.
1: Feeding, feeding them to tarantulas? Yeah.
2: No, just, no, 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 no. You know, fluffy things were my first love.
1: All right seven bait, seven joeots and they were all male.
2: And, wow. and recently
1: I've, I've just bred two litters and both not as not as big a litters but they were all male again. So I wonder if there's any cues for that. But anyway.
2: Mm. I bet I can, there are. Mm. I bet there are because um, you know that's one of the implications of climate change for a lot of species is that their sex determination is tied up with you know temperature and day length and night length and the, the differences between all that stuff and the and the temperature
0: opens and, up um, so many questions so why males though if something's maybe going wrong why why are they chucking out a load of males
2: be yeah if i said it. i, I think because males are a bit more dispensable but
0: with the with the um the the stick insects like the spiny stick insects like why can those eggs that she lays um why can they go for so long without hatching what, what's their trigger
2: I don't think anyone's quite worked it out yet but I've had the, I've had Katie dids not that that's not exciting it is but that's nothing, right? Because, you know, so I, I, I won't even chuck out a stick insect egg until it's been on my shelf for three to four years. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll make sure that I haven't killed them. Like sometimes, you know, you sit there watching them for four years and then you squash one and it's dry as a bone and you go, oh, okay, I could have chucked you out two years ago. But um, generally, as long as they're still good, then I'll, I won't chuck them out. And I've waited a really long time for things to hatch. But I um, bred a spotted predatory Katydid, which is this beautiful, um, bright green and white spotted. Well, as the name says, predatory Katydid. Um, from sort of the Mali and then out through the arid zone, they're they're really not uncommon, I guess. And um, and they. Um, Deposit their eggs, they've got a really long ovipositor, and they deposit their eggs um, about, you know, yay deep, five centimetres, I guess, deep in the soil, and possibly deeper than that if they can get them down into a crack or whatever. Um, and they lay quite a lot of eggs. So this thing laid quite a lot of eggs in the tank that it was in, and I um, collected them all up and I put them in a container and I dated it. And I reckon it was 2011. Um, that the first ones hatched and that was about 12 months after I'd put them in the container so I think they were laid in 2010 first hatchings were 2011 and then every single year until this year um I had a spate of hatchings in the same two week period so every year for like well what's that not nine, the, the nine same years clutch or of something eggs. yeah the same eggs Wow and they just and they just kept hatching so they didn't they didn't like hatch periodically or spasmodically or whatever the word is they just um they just I just had a few hatch every year for mm. nine years or
0: something because I was always told with the spinies that they drop their eggs into a, a dried out stream bed and then when the stream runs, the eggs get washed up on the side, and then they start hatching out. But uh, No, spinings have a relationship with a species of ant. Because we saw them in New South Wales, didn't we? We lifted that log up in New South Wales.
2: Yeah, you sent me photos of that. And
0: there were hundreds.
2: Yeah. yeah. And so, so spi- you know when a spiny hatches, it, it looks like an ant? Yeah. Yeah, so they mimic uh, an ant. And I, I've always suspected that's why they produce that very sweet smell too, to maybe attract, attract ants, ants to their eggs. Well, the so,
1: eggs mimic acacia seeds. Yeah,
2: and and ants, as you know, um, the, ants the
1: arils and the funicle yeah, from the acacia. Yeah, of the seed. acacia.
2: Yeah, that little funny sort of loopy bit that hangs off the end. If you taste it, it's quite sweet. It's
1: got a lot of protein. Mm.
2: So the so the spiny leaf egg has like a little knob on it, the capitulum, and that. Um, mimics that that part of the acacia seed that the ants collect and so what they do is they collect up the acacia seed and then they eat that bit off and then they leave them they just discard them in their nest but when they collect the spiny eggs they bite that capitulum off and it's it's yucky you know it's bitter so they um discard the rest of the seed in the ant's nest and the ant's nest is regulated they regulate the temperature and the humidity in the nest so the perfect environment to hatch spiny eggs is an ant's nest so that's what you're trying to recreate when you're trying to hatch the eggs out Mm. the little the little spinies mimic those ants so that when they hatch they spray a bit of a defensive spray at the ants that confuses the ants and makes them all you know run around and slap each other and then the little spiny runs out of the ant's nest
1: yeah, wow. It's funny how many things infiltrate ants' nests because there's those little spiders yeah. that, like, they've got eight legs and they use their front legs. Like, do you know how ants go to each other with their little antennas and go dooby dooby dooby? Yeah, yeah. And the spiders do it with their front legs and they're chatting to ants, just infiltrating ants.
2: Yeah, ant mimicking spiders.
1: That would be a sensible name for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's
2: so <great. laughs> But really, they really do look like ants, though. Mm. It's, you're really hard-pressed to sort of recognise that it's a spider and not an ant. Because they they even make it look like they've got six legs, like an ant. They don't mm. look like they've got eight legs, like a spider. It's funny, isn't it? So yeah, but anyway, um, so the I think the I think that's probably still pretty standard that kind of parthenogenetic thing. Mm. Um, there's a whole heap of um invertebrates that are really pretty brutal. I think with their with their mating. You know on their strategies so like if you think about arachnids and i know you just learned this <laughs> the hard way <laughs> i know you just learned this the hard way but um female spiders are, are pretty brutal they they don't take any messing around at all so if the male is in any way vulnerable to the female and let's face it if he's not a good dancer she will just knock him out and Eat him. It's
1: all about Um, the moves.
2: It's all about the moves. And it's like that for scorpions as well. They're even they're even more engaged in the dance really. They like have a flat rock that they dance over and he deposits his sperm packet onto that flat rock. And then he has to do this like special dance that sort of, you know, gets her in the mood. And then he stings her just a little bit. Oh. A little bit of a love sting. It's a little bit, of, uh, little bit of S&M going on, I think, in the scorpion world. So he, he stings her and then he dances her over his little packet of sperm. And if she's, you know, receptive, she doesn't eat him and suck his guts out. And if she's not, then she does. Isn't that
0: weird? We do the same. <coughs> it's
2: pretty, you know, it's pretty... I think it's pretty beautiful. Some spiders are actually obligated to eat their mate. So if you think about um, our old friend, the redback. So redback spiders are obligated to actually eat their mate and that triggers the release of semen so that she then becomes pregnant. But there's a whole group So she of, gets
1: pregnant <laughs> after she eats him.
2: Yeah, well, she has to eat him and then his pout remains sort of lodged in her like genital opening.
1: Oh, okay. Because spiders have the poups, those little things... Either side of the face.
2: Yeah, like their little boxing gloves on their petty palps, yeah.
1: And they put the semen on there and they put that into the girl. Yeah,
2: they have kind of like a hypodermic syringe. So they produce, I don't know if they all produce a sperm web, but certainly lots of them produce like a sperm web and they, they um, spill their sperm onto this sperm web and then they use their little palp to suck it up into their like hypodermic syringy apparatusy thing on the end of their palp. And then they approach the female that's why it's so risky because they have to like you know the f- the female's genital opening is not at the back where the kids ask me this all the time where do spiders poo from Duh. and they don't poo out the back end of their abdomen that's just their spinnerets and their silk glands their genital opening and the spot where they poo from is like right up under their you know almost fairly close to their cephalothorax it's like a little a crescent shaped slit right at sort of the top of their abdomen but underneath obviously and um so the the male has to approach her head first and then reach under and inject his semen into that genital opening and in the case of a redback they kind of offer them like they literally twist themselves around and offer themselves up to be consumed and you kind of think all sorts of things about that. Will I do? I think all sorts of things about that, like, you know, wow, who would do that? But there is a, this is really interesting, I think. So there is a. a I'll let you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> right in. Um, yeah, so s- right to Steve. Oh so, so there's a whole group of redback spiders that have learnt to seduce and mate sub-adult females because those sub-adult females so it's not until the redback spider is an adult female that she gets the right sex hormones that trigger her to eat the male mm. so if they've worked out i mean i think this is pretty clever they've worked out that if they mate with sub-adult females that those sub-adult females won't eat them Mm. Uh, the- and they can army. escape with their lives. Because then the subadult female can store that sperm. So that's so that that's the other cool thing. Okay. A lot of arachnids oh, yeah. store sperm. I mean a lot of invertebrates store sperm. So they only mate like I had a scorp well, I've still got that scorpion, the same you would have seen my scorpion that I've had forever. Like I've had her for more than 13 the years. Is right, the yeah. And she um for probably the first 10 years that I had her, she gave birth every 18 months and she was never mated. She was an adult when I got her. She was found in someone's lounge room in Melrose and um, they weren't sure what to do so they bought her home and gave her to me and I've never mated her and she produced offspring for, you know, every 18 months because their gestation is 18 months. A scorpion. How crazy is that? That's amazing. It's like an elephant. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And then they carry the babies. Yeah, or if they don't eat them. But, yeah, so, yeah, she gave birth quite a few times. And then the last few times she gave birth, it was just one or two babies, and they didn't look really great, and she did eat them. And then she hasn't given birth for the last... Well, she's certainly had longer than 18 months to gestate more babies, and she hasn't. So I guess she's run out of sperm finally. But yeah, so how crazy <sighs> is that?
1: Yeah, I was going to say the um the male redback spider doesn't look anything like the female, and he's a lot smaller. Isn't
2: really he? small, yeah, yeah. Like you know,
1: it's not even much of a feed for her. But
2: no, yeah. no. But I don't I don't know that it's a It's not like so. Everybody knows the story about the praying mantises. And, in fact, I think I told that story yeah. in the last podcast about the praying mantis that just kept just eating. Just going. And, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that ripped the head off the male and then we put her back on and um, put him back on. He was, like, on the floor. And we put him back on the female and he then re-engaged with her without his head. It's no less disturbing the second time around. It's no less disturbing. (laughs) I'm trying to give you the short version for those people who've heard it before. But uh, um, yeah, so then he re-engaged with her. Um, She then finished eating his head and then ate the rest of him until he was just a little set of genitals pumping away. Now, there is a bit of evidence to suggest that. Even though praying mantises are not obligated to eat the male. So again, it's very S and M, isn't it? It's very, very queer, I think. But um so the that they're not obligated to eat the male. And it seems to me, because I, I try not to let my males get eaten because, you know, I want as many makings as I can.
0: You're talking about your insects now. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I want them to mate as many times as I can, If especially if I've only got one male and I've got four females and I want him to be able to mate all those females. So I try not to let them eat each other, unlike you with your spider who went and watched television. I wouldn't do that. I would like... <laughs>
1: I made it. I'm taking that it was a, out it was,
0: a, it was a great program that was on The block was on yeah,
2: was like, Come on yeah.
1: I watched him for a long Farmer time
2: Farmer wants a wife Nothing was happening um, Anyway Yeah, so so I I always watch them Until I can see that she's not going to eat him And if she looked like she was going to eat him I would intervene I would like separate them Because if she's really well fed um, she would only really try and eat him if he was really annoying her and um, or if he wasn't, you know, up to the job sort of thing. Then she, then she might eat him. But um, in a wild situation, the reason she would eat him is because um, he's a very big protein meal and that would theoretically produce a better uthica and a, a more fecund uthica, like, you know, the number of offspring that would hatch from that uthica should theoretically be a larger number if she, if she eats him and has one big meal. But if she's not hungry, she shouldn't eat him. She doesn't have to.
1: I think guys are pretty happy to make a sacrifice, I think, often. Like, you look at the yellow-footed antichinists. Yeah, endicinus. but give them an apple or something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not yourself. No. The <laughs> yeah.
2: well,
1: yellow-footed antichinists, I mean, we all know that, you know, they... they Produce many young, or well, they have like eight to ten babies, or something like that.
2: how yeah, but they die, don't they? <laughs> they
1: die. Yeah, they die straight after mating, and not long thereafter. What so both? Might, no, the males. They might be the about die. eleven months. A lot of the small desert die straight away, and and the thinking is it's taking it for the team, like literally the team of offspring that will need the resources that he would otherwise eat.
2: Well, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, mating does take it out of you and certainly, uh, shortens your lifespan. So they did a, they did a bit of a thing with beetles and beetles are, you know, beetles will pretty much have a go at shagging anything. Certainly some species of beetles. Um, so, you know, if you put two male beetles together, they will shag till there's no tomorrow. If you put a male and a female beetle together, they will, um, sometimes the male will like literally shag the female to death so it's not like, you know, it's not like he'll stop in order to make sure that his, his um, genetic material gets, you know, perpetuated. He'll just keep bonking away. So they're quite hedonistic, I think, beetles. It's, it seems to me that they are. And if there are two female beetles together, they'll certainly... Obviously, they can't copulate, but they'll have a bit, you know, they'll engage in sort of mating-type behaviour, yeah, so there, so there's a fair bit of evidence, and I've certainly, as you know, I'm quite invested in beetle breeding. So there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that uh, if if you put two males together and they are bonking quite happily, they will live, you know, a, a slightly shortened life because they've used so much energy shagging. If you put a male and a female together, that male will... uh, The female will live long enough to lay eggs and stuff, but the male will, will have a very short life indeed. Like, he will, you know, he will bonk himself until he sort of, you know, can't really survive anymore. But if you leave a male unmated, he will live the longest... So I see that with my rainbow stag beetles. I see that with the golden green stag beetles. I see that with, well, all the stag beetles. Um, And certainly all of the scarabs, like the rhino beetles and the Christmas beetles and the fiddler beetles, they... um...
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was no pun intended. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: We can always (laughs) rely on you. Um, Yeah, so you, you see that with them where if you, you know, if I produce my rhinoceros beetles they will usually eclose about christmas time or january that means that adults will (laughs) emerge stop laughing (laughs) eclose means become an adult adrian it means hatch out of their cocoon um so they so they will eclose sort of late december early january and then the males will usually only live for about four to six months Unless you don't mate them, in which case I've had a male live for more than 12 months, not, wow. not mated. But if they're mated, the more they mate, the less they live.
1: I wonder if in the wild there's a mechanism for them to be able to get away from the other one. So that wouldn't happen like it does in captivity.
2: Look, there are some beetles. Beetles do crazy things. So beetles are also pretty, you know, they have a kind of a chastity belt that they you know, like a built-in chastity belt. So some male beetles will actually plug the genital opening of the female so that other beetles can't come along and mate with her and they can that way be assured that it will be their semen that produces the offspring. They also have uh, lots of ways of actually selecting their mates. So in th- and some of it's kind of funny. So um, with the stag beetles, for example, the the stag beetles will come along, and the males, certainly with Phallocognathus um, mulleri, which is the rainbow stag beetle, the males will come along and they will try to lift up the other males above their head, like oh, and like literally lift them up. Like they'll grab, they'll grapple with their stag horns or their weapons as we call them and they will like um hold the male up over their head and the the winning male is the one that holds the male up over his head but the females do that too so like the females will um to decide who gets to mate with that big you know telodont male that's what we that's the word you give that big Male that's the teledont. biggest telodont, yeah, with the biggest weapons, biggest horns, if you like. So that male, the, to decide who gets to mate with him, the females engage in the same thing, where they, you know, they're very butch, and they will lift up the other females over their head, and so the female that lifts up the other females the best gets to mate with the telodont male. And um, but interestingly, and I think this. I think there's something in this for humans as well. So it's, it's not the big butch couple that will produce the most offspring. It's actually the little weedy couple who didn't win that holding up over the head game. That will go away and live happily ever after and have the have the happiest got family less of and an the, ego. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> they won't you know, they won't end up divorced and fighting over the Porsche. Yeah, they they um they're the ones that will go away and have the most babies. I think that's really cute. Oh, that's always yeah, the nerdy <laughs> ones, driving. the nerdy sciencey ones they yeah. will be like, Well, I could have lifted you up, Sharon, but I don't want to pull a hammy. Yeah, so <laughs> so I think they yeah, that's cute, right? Exactly so what they say. Yeah. I think so, in <laughs> yeah. beetle. They say it in beetle. But, yeah, so they so they then, so for some of those beetles, they do a few things that, that are quite hedonistic that don't make sense in terms of prolonging their species' survival. So they'll do things like mate with a female before she's receptive. So, so sometimes uh, beetles are close and become adults, but their genitalia aren't fully developed. So with some of the stag beetles, they've got to wait you know 6 months it's a little bit like you know why we don't allow child brides i guess cuz if you give birth at 12 chances are you're going to mess things up down there and it's the same for beetles so if if a male doesn't wait for a female to be for, to have her genitalia fully developed then he will in the process of mating with her he will ruin her um, genitalia and she won't be able to um, she won't be able to mate properly and she won't lay eggs
0: that would make the rest of their life a lot less as well I guess
2: yeah yeah they would fully develop they, they, so yeah, they, they will die yeah they would do it they will do and it's a really common mistake that people trying to breed some of these harder to breed beetles it's a really common mistake that they make as soon as their adults become adults they want to rush in and mate them but um, I just sit back and wait I usually wait six six months four to six months before I will actually allow them to mate I don't even let them see each other in that time and sometimes that can really backfire sometimes you can this year that happened to me I I I waited I had the date in my diary and then I went to um you know I fed up the female and then um she got a bit warm and she um Flew and hit the top of the container and knocked herself out, and I didn't notice until two days later when I went to mate her and she was dead. And no. I was like, "Oh my god, um, that was really that was heartbreaking." Mm. I like cried actual tears for <laughs> about two days. Over but insects? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's it's <laughs> it, they're really hard to breed in there, and I've been breeding them for quite a long time, and she was my last female, so. Yeah, so that was really hard. But if I'd have rushed that and mated her earlier, she wouldn't have laid eggs anyway. So you know. It,
0: I think the hobby side does that. That everyone rushes to breed things in a in a hobby related thing. Even reptiles is terrible for it. People all yeah. power feed their animals to get them up to size yeah. so that they can breed them.
2: Um, yeah, and and unfortunately with beetles, there's no. That's probably a little known fact about rainbow stag beetles. I've probably just helped a few people crack open their problems with beetle breeding, but shh, don't tell anyone. It's our <laughs> secret.
0: Um, but the, the reptiles have a longer lifespan in general, so I guess it's you know you're gonna end up with getting babies from yeah eventually. from your reptiles, but yeah. your, your beetles and things.
2: Oh, if and you some screw things, it up, then I, I some things like for example praying mantises there is actually an advantage to growing them as quickly as you can because you you don't want them to stagnate you don't want them to um you know to sit there and not not shed at a, appropriate intervals and you don't you don't want to starve them they won't they mm. won't produce reproduce as well if they've not had good nutrition and stuff like that and that that's a little bit different for beetles some of the beetles you know some of the beetles don't even feed when they're adults. They've that, that all that nutrition has to come their way when they're a larva. Not rainbow stags, they do feed. but And moths are the same, like, you know, but moths, I guess I'm, I've made the beetles sound quite highly sexualized, and, and they are, but um, moths, I think are, they win my pick for, you know, engaging in mad orgies because they, that's what they do. We, we've um, just had that intensely in our house over the last sort of month. Because it's moth season now. It's what month are we in November. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, it's a little bit late this year, to be fair. So um, so it's November, and we've got all kinds of different, you know, emperor gum moths and Helena gum moths and silkworms and or silk moths, and um, and they're all madly, you know, we're feeding caterpillars. But before those caterpillars can be produced, last year's moths. Have to emerge from their cocoons. And for some of the local Helena moths, for example, they um they can get two seasons in in, like they can get two generations in one season. So the moths that emerge uh about what late September, early October. They they sort of time it. You you would have seen it when we oh no, you weren't in Port Augusta. So when we we're in Port Augusta, I bought all these Helena gum moths with me and they all they they emerged from their cocoons in front of people all day. Like you know, you spray them and you get them get them really sort of pumped to a close and mm. and they'll all start you can hear them, they they, they like make a little scratching noise that you can hear so you know that there's a few that are going to come out so i set them up so people could watch them you know eating their way out of their cocoons and what they didn't realize is that some of them had been in those cocoons for two or even three years Mm. because once they go into diapause and they overwinter um Sometimes they can take ages before the right sort of temperatures and, and humidity trigger them to come out of that. And what they want is to emerge en masse so that there's heaps of them. And then they they just engage in this mad orgy where um, the males will mate with the males, the males will mate with the females, the females will mate with the females. or You know, they're all just having a go. And um, by the morning and it's sort of sad you know because they've had this they've had this full on couple of years sometimes inside their cocoon just waiting for this moment of mad and intense sexual you know insatiable sexual sort of um energy to be unleashed and and then in the morning you've just got all these bedraggled males just like they're still like they're usually not dead they usually take a few days before they fully expire, but um, a night of frenzy mating and the males will just have their beautiful wings, like they've, you know, they've got these huge, the size of your palm sort of wingspan, and by the morning they'll have like sticks for wings because mm. they'll have just beaten and battered all their wings to pieces and it um, doesn't seem to bother them. And the, f- the females usually remain fairly intact and then the females will just start laying eggs but they they're gonna start laying eggs whether a male mates with them or not so they'll either lay infertile eggs that will never hatch or if a male mates with them then they'll lay fertile eggs and they'll they'll hatch and so now we've got we would have two and a half thousand Helena gum moth caterpillars in the lounge room in an aquarium i was hoping to hit some of your <laughs> eucalyptus trees up before i left
0: there's one just down here that will chub up.
2: Great.
1: Why do you have so many?
2: Oh, I just love them. And sometimes things eat them, you know. And, and I want schools to love them like I love them. I want schools to steer away from silkworms, which are quite limited in their, you know, funness. I want them to engage in a local species of moth that you know is really they're impressive caterpillars like they're 10 they, centimeters they like, long they sound like huge moths they're huge yeah they're big they're and the caterpillars are probably in terms of south australian caterpillars they would be the biggest arboreal species of caterpillar so the biggest one that lives in trees there's probably a few bigger ones like some of the allids would have bigger caterpillars but they're down in the ground in roots and stuff so they're big and they're beautiful and they're
0: i've always fancied a hercules moth
2: yeah well I've had them but they um, their food plant is bleeding heart and that's quite tricky to grow down here oh, okay. and um, they eat a lot of it so you know you need to but I've I've read a couple of them at a time one year Ethan got obsessed with them and you know and we we went through the process of growing the bleeding heart we collected some seed from I won't say the botanic gardens but a place the a botanic lot like gardens.
0: that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um i won't use the name
2: well i i worked there at the time so we did get permission as but as long um, as you don't say it it's fine it was yeah. a
0: garden of the botanic <laughs> variety yeah, that's right <laughs>
2: um a very well organized and beautiful garden in town no we did get permission to collect the seed and so we collected seed and we grew the plants and we we thought we'd done really well we grew like i don't know heaps of the bleeding heart plants and we thought well surely we've got enough you know grew them on for like two years and then we um got a friend to send us some couple of little hatchling caterpillars and they just ate every (laughs) it was a bit of a nightmare they just ate every last leaf that we had and um the following year the plants came back with enormous vigor it was great but it was too late then (laughs) no no we got them through we got them through and they emerged in my bathroom I've, I've got photos on my on my facebook page i think of one on my face and it looks like a masquerade mask it's like yeah, I mean, it's yeah, like yeah, a yeah, mask on my face yeah and um, they're, they're beautiful but they're the same like they they spend quite a long time as a caterpillar they're in their cocoon for quite a long time i can't remember it's maybe six weeks or something like that and then the moths emerge and they're dead within a week or two
1: that was a massive eye-opener for me when you and Ethan spent the night at our place and we set the... Uh, Who's Ethan? Ethan Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan Beaver, the entomologist? Do we call him that now?
2: We have to. He's published like four papers well, now. there
1: we are. Um, Little shit.
2: <laughs> <yeah>.
1: <laughs> and, and you guys set up the light sheeting station at the top of the property, then one yeah. halfway down and then one right down the bottom. And yeah. We, we yeah. hung out all night and every hour, you were there, Steve, every hour we'd go and check. What no, I got to about 10 o'clock and went home. Yeah, we, we were there till about four or something. Yeah,
2: we were, yeah. It was, it was
1: fascinating. But what it was for me was like, as people know, I've got a, a remnant piece of bushland. You know, I know about the birds and the reptiles and the plants and and you kind of, you know, you leave the outside line and you see that there are moths. Yeah. And without knowing a great deal about it, you kind of go, well, they would have started off as like a caterpillar and the caterpillar probably had a host plant. And, and that's about where my knowledge ends. Yeah. But. It was absolutely fascinating that, like, there we are holding these things and and you guys are interpreting these animals and saying, well, this one here doesn't have a name yet. This one here has just emerged because its wings are fresh. This one here has probably been out for a couple of days because it looks very, you know, shagged, trashed. Um, this one here starts off as a caterpillar and it lives inside an acacia.
2: Yeah, I'm, and I oh, think yeah. we found some boars, yeah. didn't I we? I said, yeah.
1: well, I've got a few acacia species here. I said, I've, I've got a lot of acacia pygnantha. And Ethan said, that's the one it lives in. So we went over to some acacia pygnanthas and then there was some, was um, some yeah,
2: what do you call it? Sawdust, sort of like a plug. Yeah, 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 yeah make
1: which plug. I've walked past a hundred times and probably thought there's some kind of a boring insect living in that tree. But we don't talk about it because yeah. it's... It's, boring. Ah. <laughs> and, and and there it was. And and it would spend years living in there. It'd get to the size of a small sausage and just come out and fuck around and have an orgy. <laughs> Off it goes, yeah. You know, and, and then these are all the things you don't consider.
2: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and we, you know, we have a display as part of our Bugs and Slugs things that we take to schools because one of my big missions really um, as you know Ethan's heavily into taxonomy but that's not really my first love my first love is really getting people to engage with um the role that these things play in nature and how they fit in the in the natural world and and for me that's in my brain there's kind of like a a systems diagram that's what nature is in my brain and and all the different cogs that you know that that turn each other and click into each other that's that's kind of how it is in my brain and so i want people to understand how things fit in the natural world i want them to understand that um you know this thing that they really value and like we've talked about this a fair bit i think adrian you know i I pay you out about your irrelevant vertebrates but um (laughs) but obviously my passion for this stuff began with irrelevant vertebrates, you know, like as a little kid, I I always had a possum in a pillowcase that, you know, I was hand raising. I had special permission to take my possums to school. <laughs> like that's true. Mm. And if I had like in year 11, I remember when we had year 11 exams, my school organized for the laboratory assistant to feed my possums while I was in the exams and stuff like that. So I was really lucky to have had people who just understood that they couldn't stop me i i I was i was a bit of a greta thunberg of my day i think in 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 some respects in in that i was always making passionate speeches about saving the planet you know even though i know greta thinks none of us cared but some of us did you know there's three of us around this table i think who who've given it a good hard crack absolutely and um so yeah i I, (laughs) (laughs) was I love you. <laughs> so so I really want people to understand how things fit in nature because I think if we don't understand that, if we don't understand nature, the machine, then we're never going to understand how we're messing with it, you know. And I think to some extent we all have to learn to be mechanics of nature so that we understand how to keep the machine tuned and oiled. And so one of the displays that we've got, you know, we we've got a few rescued birds. I keep trying to give away a magpie, but but as you know, we've got so if f- anyone wants a magpie. <laughs> <laughs> I think James wants it now. It's kind of it's kind of cute. I've got um, five. Yeah, you, I've seen yours. Yeah. at the back, but yeah, wild ones. <laughs> so well, this one this one will be wild again, I'm sure. But yeah, so we we've got this display that focuses on hollows and tree hollows and how the life of a tree hollow i I guess the the story of a hollow Mm. and um and it starts off with one of those heapialid borers that bore into you know they, they tend to bore into really small saplings they don't tend to bore into great big giant trees they they bore into really small saplings and what's left in that sapling is like a really small you know tube i guess and that's one way that a hollow can start. And I know people attribute, you know, like all oh, fire and lightning and stuff like that, and go, "Oh, they make hollows." But I, I doubt that they make as many hollows as we think, because it seems to me that what really is responsible for the vast majority of hollow creation and ongoing renovation of hollows is bugs. woodpeckers. <laughs> no, sorry,
1: I was like peckers.
2: Um. You're a comedian. So, yeah, that, that so I really want people to understand that a hollow is not something that just sort of materialises in a tree, that the reason they take, like something like a rainbow lorikeet, I've, I've done a bit of research into this, it's obviously not my work, but the general consensus is that for a hollow big enough for a rainbow lorikeet to nest in, they that those hollows might take between 50 and 100 years of constant renovation and the reason I say renovation is because they might start off as a little thin hole that a borer moth has created and then uh, that little hole might get a bit damp or a bit moist and you might get a few things come you know sheltering in that hole and bring in a bit of fungus that then you know in that moist environment with a bit of sawdust at the bottom starts to sort of you know make the hollow a bit soft and then you might get something like termites move in and all the while that tree is getting bigger and growing and the hollow is still there and so then you get another group of animals coming in to renovate the hollow and and so you might have termites renovating the hollow and then you might sort of get some beetle lava that come in and go, whoa, hang on, these termites have made all this really cool white rotten sort of sawdust in here and that's what that's what our lava needs. So then they start to really clean out that hollow and widen it and deepen it and and you might have whole dynasties of those animals, of those like fiddler beetles or, you know, coming in and renovating that hollow until it's big enough for something like a rainbow lorikeet but for something like you know a brush tail possum a brush possum well i don't know i reckon you could nail a boot to a tree and a brush possum would probably nest in it but that's my that's my thing when people go oh we're putting up nest boxes and i think that's great but what we know about nest boxes is that there's a very narrow species the selection of species that use them we know that hollows are as specific as you can possibly imagine, possibly more specific than you can imagine. So there are some animals that we know will only nest in hollows that are in living trees of a certain species, and those hollows need to be a certain height above the ground, the entrance hole needs to be a certain diameter, the hollow needs to be a certain depth, there needs to be a certain amount of um, insulating wood around that hollow for temperature maintenance or whatever, and it's no surprise that up to... 50% 50% of our endangered species are things that nest in hollows so because those hollows are very quickly becoming much much harder to find even if I look out out over this beautiful vista of your beautiful backyard Steve I can't see any trees big enough no that aren't. that there would be hollows in them no. and they're big beautiful trees
0: even when you walk out into Sturt Gorge you don't really see that there's maybe, do you know I'd say? There's maybe 20 trees in the whole of Sturt Gorge that are big enough to, and old enough to have good hollows in them. Yeah, It's a gorge that is full of very young trees, I think. Do you agree, Adrian? You've spent a lot of time down there.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't want to put a number on it, but that, that seems to be mm. all the way through the Adelaide Hills. I think mostly yeah. all these trees were cleared. Mm. Um, yeah. And these are other regrowth from the ground or new trees. And like you said, it, it takes
0: 50 to 300 years to create good hollows yep. in trees
2: like and people get really paranoid about them so you know if there's a tree within <laughs> within i don't know 100 meters of your house and it's full of hollows drop then it down. people go oh my god it's going to drop branches <laughs> on my roof and rada 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 and I don't, I don't think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they're actually super are,
0: super strong yeah like there, there's uh, there's a few you see now um one just at going to mean nothing to some of our listeners sorry but one at, at just the, the bottom of uh, my road when you go on paradise onto south road <laughs> um there's one on the right hand side there that they've left a big old dead tree yeah. that's just got loads of hollows in in everything and they've left it there and and it's it's was amazing. it
2: dead when they started
0: yeah yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's been it's been dead since mm. I've been here. Is that yeah, in like great. Ragless it's a sad story. Ragless
2: Reserve, <laughs> yeah. I think that is. That reserve down there. It's full I think of it might be. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, there's just one that they've left there with all these hollows and I see that quite oh, was often a frog now. There once. And just I near think
1: it's the the pub.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know the one. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's great that they're leaving stuff like that around. But in Sturt Gorge you don't really get any of that
1: because mm. like yeah like you were And that's the River Redgum too, so that's um some of those for some reason some of the big river red gums managed yeah. to remain
2: but i think that's why you know because some people react really strongly to people having opinions about not cutting down those big old trees and i know recently our our mate Sophie Thompson was you know, quite vocal about some trees that are literally yeah. next door to her A place. Big so old trees we, at Mount Barker they chopped yeah. down recently. And we were up there the other weekend and we drove past like we, we were up at Sophie's for her open garden that she does, which is just sensational. If you've never been get on it. What's Sophie's um, garden called? Our, Sophie's, Patch. Uh, Sophie's, Patch. Sophie's yeah. Patch, yeah. It's it's just amazing. <laughs> makes you want to scratch your eyes out. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Sophie. Yeah, sorry, Sophie. Um, But it's very cool and it just keeps getting cooler just when you think she can't possibly have had time to do anything else. She does more. Um, But, yeah, they're literally next door and we drove past them and they have seriously, I'm not making this up, they have seriously cut them down and then they've moved them like from here to the other side of your lounge room which is what 24 meters something 23 (laughs) meters yeah so they've moved them to the other side of your lounge room and put them you know dug a hole and stuck them in that hole it's ridiculous yeah and and the argument is that they couldn't have moved that driveway they had to move the trees
1: it's uh, And when ridiculous. you just look
2: at it, you just go... And the rest of the paddock so, so is like bare. They're the only trees in the paddock. So mm. it, it, it's really hard to get your head around how they couldn't have...
0: So they've, they've moved live the, trees or yeah. are
1: these...
2: Yeah, well they won't be live won't They won't be or live. I won't I won't trees. No. Yeah.
1: And that would have been passed through conservation land managers in the council, through the Native Veg Council.
2: But it's like a lot of these things how? where even when people are given the opportunity to speak up so that so it was you know i heard a couple of people from the council speaking and they were you know the, under the development act laws they do have to sort of like ask community for public yeah yeah but yeah. nobody reads the and, uh, the paper anymore yeah. so so it wasn't until people were confronted with the actual act of them being cut down that anybody reacted you know mm. and so maybe that that needs to change but well if they want
1: to consult the public they should put it on the Adelaide Hills community chat page at least somebody's going to see it. Oh, crikey, they don't need that. <laughs> Maybe they Put do. it on Facebook.
0: What? Some um, councils
1: are very proactive in protecting old trees and significant trees and even dead trees and Burnside Council for at least 20 years have been uh, in their legislation they'll protect a dead tree of the scott hollows but then you look at the burnside shopping center that expanded where they had that big old <laughs> red gun and they built the shopping center around, around it and then, it and then put and a, a and reef surprise, on it surprise surprise <laughs> yeah but they
2: put a reef on it to <laughs> be did fair they put a reef on it was essentially it they built it around it and enclosed <laughs> but, it fully enclosed it oh it's dead now what a we, shame yeah
0: we <laughs> laugh about that, that. but Whoa, that's yeah. the most effort that's gone into trying to save a tree, surely, in the but world. But
2: why are you saving it if it's going to live inside? Like, it, you, you know what I mean? Like, that's just crazy to me. They should
0: have had Because that's to... where parents take their kids now, so.
2: Yeah, but they should have not been allowed to put a roof on that bit. They should have had to have had a Why couldn't baby. they have moved it? It <laughs> <laughs> worked. Um, now we're getting off the track now. No, that's right.
1: We're talking about we populations yeah, of yeah. people, aren't we? But,
2: but <laughs> but with, um, <laughs> Don't with, make me. You said you're me. What you
0: were, were talking about, Chris, and, and this isn't a wind you up question. This is a serious question. Like, What I've learned on this podcast is um, it all starts, yeah, they do actually. Um, they, they, it all that's starts coming. from the bottom and works up. So plants, which says to me, plants are so important.
2: Fungus. But, um, my. This so is my it motto? fungus? Yeah, because what yeah. I was going
0: to say, without insects, plants can't really thrive. So what's more important, the chicken or fungus, the egg? fungus?
2: Fungus. Um, if there is one true God, there's one true <laughs> God, Steve. It's fungus. Is it right? Yep, go. For sure. Yeah, go. Yep. fungus is the fungus is the other ties that bind, for sure. So you know that fungus, you know that fungus no, does really cool things. So you know that in a forest, for example, let's say this tree here is being attacked by insects, then this tree can communicate to all the other trees in the forest, get ready, guys, insects are coming your way. And it communicates that via the fungal it's network It's like a movie underground. sitting
1: here <laughs> in <it>, the mycelium.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's the like mycelium. It's like the internet of the underground. Yeah, it's like the internet, yeah, like the, the fibre optic, optic cable. But, yeah, back to the uh, very queer sex lives of Bugs and Slugs. We seem to have digressed from that. But um, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about um, the Cnidarians, the jellyfish and the sea anemones, because they are kind of verging on immortal. They can do crazy, crazy things. So they can actually, like, bud off a bit of themselves and grow a whole new sea anemone from that little bud that sort of left behind. I've seen them do that in my tank when I've when I've set up marine tanks. You see them, you know, they they sort of move by like cartwheeling. Like so, they this this is sea anemones, not not jellyfish. So they, um, you know, the sea anemone sits on a stalk on a foot, and then it has like its tentacles, like a truffula tree, and then it. Bends those tentacles down and pulls up its stalked foot and rolls over like a cartwheel, right? Mm. And then where the stalked foot was attached to the rock, it leaves little gooby bits, and those little gooby bits the very next day will be little sea anemones. Like, I'm not kidding, it's not like a week later or you know a month later it'll be the very next day those little gooby bits will have formed little tiny sea anemones and then within weeks they can look like a great big clump of adult sea anemones it's freaky
1: so like in a plant we'd call that growth by segmentation
2: yeah but then sea anemones can also and and this is true for sea anemones and jellies as well they can also reproduce sexually by by releasing eggs and spore into the water and that's all controlled by you know the lunar cycles and stuff so sometimes when that's happening the water will be cloudy with the eggs and sperm of sea anemones and then they meet in the water and that's like sexual reproduction they form like a uh, i don't know if it's called a gamete but i i, I want to suggest that it's probably called a gamete or something Gamete. like a yeah like a baby version of a sea anemone And then that finds somewhere to lodge and that grows. But the other thing they can do is an adult sea anemone, if it's like, you know, feeling a little bit under the weather or, you know, and you see this if your tank's looking a little bit down on its luck, um, the sea anemones will look a little bit sick and a little bit, you know, and um, then you do a water change and they just kind of, they sort of revert back to kind of like a juvenile sea anemone and then suddenly do a water change and they like perk up and they are suddenly big again like so they can they can kind of regenerate themselves in a number of different ways none of which involves actual penetration so they have sexual reproduction asexual reproduction and all kinds of weird kind of regenerative so both of
1: their ways of mating or was there a third one you're
2: going to say Oh, just like ongoing regeneration. So we think that okay. um, the closest animal to achieving immortality is probably a sea anemone or a jellyfish, unless, of course, they get eaten by a turtle or, mm. you know, then then I guess they're...
1: It's so much like a plant, isn't it? It's almost like a yeah. to yep. windborne pollination, the way that they just yep. spread their eggs and spoon yep. into the water.
2: There's a few things. Like um, recently you sent me a photo. I think it was you of the planarian yeah yeah so planarians which are um essentially a flatworm yeah they can reproduce just by like so if you keep one in a tank or whatever and it's got to be moist like they love moisture and then you'll like have one, right? And then you lift up the log one day and there'll be like one big one and a couple of little ones. And those little ones have been produced by the big one just leaving a piece of itself behind. It's so weird. That's, it's that's so <laughs> weird. And they can also reproduce sexually, but they can just, you know, bud off. Mm, butt yeah, off. if
1: you chop one into three sections, you'll end up with three.
2: I don't think it works if you chop them. I've heard it does. I've heard it does. Okay. d don't, don't try that at home. Don't listen to your Uncle Adrian. Don't
1: go don't go chopping it. <laughs> <laughs> no, do it. Up. Yeah. We it need doesn't the arms it doesn't science. it doesn't work for worms. <laughs> I know um,
2: when I was in primary school someone told me that you could you know you could cut a worm into pieces and you would get lots of worms, but you don't
1: It works with snakes. You chop a snake in half. Oh, you, you do. You get two snakes, don't you, Steve? You do. Yeah.
2: Only one of them's dead. <laughs> both of them are dead. One you of them sta- dead. Christians. How did you get that? <laughs>
1: Depends on where you, you chop get it. You get two snakes, yeah.
2: and they're both dead. Um, yeah, but so worms are another interesting one. Worms and slugs and snails.
1: When you say worms, there's there's several groups that we commonly call worms. Yeah. You mean like the earthworms? Yeah, the group.
2: earthworms, yep. the annelid worms. Not the they're... tapeworms or the flatworms or the... Oh well, yeah, them too. They're pretty interesting. Okay. But, um But the annelid worms are pretty interesting because they um, they're hermaphrodites. So, and that's the other thing that you know, if you're talking about queer sex of bugs and slugs, the, they've taken the, it to the next level. Yeah, the the notion that you have to have a male and a female, and you have to have this dichotomous gender, that's very old school. Because the slugs and the snails and the worms and the, oh, well, I was going to say cuttlefish, but they're snails technically as well. So, um, yeah, they, they don't um, – or cuttlefish do have males and females, but I'll get on to them in a minute. Um, they're the drag queens of the ocean. But um, <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah okay. Stay tuned. <laughs> but the, <laughs> but the, the slugs and the snails yeah. that, so and the earthworms, they're hermaphrodites, right? So they don't have gender, the vast majority of them. There's a, a couple that do. But the vast majority of species of slugs and snails do not have dichotomous genders. So they don't have males and females, they're hermaphrodites. And people go, oh, so they're male and female, which is, I guess, kind of right, but they're not male and female, they're hermaphrodites. So it's a third gender. Um, they both have a penis, they both have ovaries. They reproduce, again, very s and sort of, you know, sadomasochist almost. So when a snail, people might have seen this actually, when a snail is a virgin, um, an older snail who's not a virgin will come along and produce this thing called a love dart and will oh stab the virgin snail kind of in the neck, with this love dart. Now, that sounds all very, ooh, kinky.
0: Oh, is, this a, is this a podcast that we're going to have to actually look up what you're saying now to make sure that you're <laughs> not winding us up?
2: I'm not winding you <laughs> oh, okay. up. I've got a photo of it. Um, I trust
0: you, Chris. <laughs>
2: I've, ta- I've taken a photo of just garden snails, like, actually with the love dart in their neck. And, um, and not only that, but the photo I took also showed that the love dart is attached. Do you remember in the olden days when you had a phone in the kitchen that had a cradle with a cord sure and it was is. like a, you know, roundy <laughs> round go cord roundy cord. Cable. Yeah, had really
1: long one so you could, could walk the around the whole talk. house.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so so they the the love dart
0: No, is, I can't remember that, Chris. It's actually
2: no. attached <laughs> to the snail that produces it via this kind of like clear um, string like thing that looks a little bit twirly. like the yeah twirly oh, wow. thing from wow. your phone and um, and it's almost like that love Dart kind of programs the virgin snails hard drive that's the only way I can describe it um, it's clear, clearly clearly my work wasn't involved in snails um, but I've seen it happen and it's really really cool except that. About fifty percent of the virgin snails that are darted um, don't survive that, so it's quite brutal. Um, but if they do survive it, then they can go on to reproduce and um, you know dart other snails if they want. So so they they don't all mate like that. Sometimes mating is just you know. Um, sometimes you would have seen this. Have you ever found two snails that are joined together and yeah. there's like a white, it's like a white rope thing that you know I've
1: yeah, seen so,
2: footage of it yeah okay well, it's really easy to and see they're if hanging you,
1: by their mucus I've seen it, it here, you know, they're no they're leopard slugs oh, okay so
2: snails don't hang Stand by their mucus snails yeah. just have like this white penis that um, so the, one snail produces the penis from you know where the little pulmonary gland is with the hole like the little hole that on the snail yeah that, that you're, you're the speaking to
0: us like we've looked at snails closely Chris
2: seen this everyone has seen the little hole on the side of the neck of a A, snail i
1: think i think maybe it's been pointed out to me i I feel like it has
2: and they breathe through it and they poo through it and they their penis comes out of it so Ah. yeah so so that they you you'll see them sometimes joined with you know there'll be a penis in one and a penis in the other one so they've both got a penis and they've both got ovaries so they technically they can both go away and lay eggs. Although,
1: and it's about rat- where their neck is. I mean, for the listeners that didn't be yeah. pointing to your neck the whole time, they have a penis come out of their neck and they poo through their neck hole. I never knew that. Yeah. Penis I've seen that. Hole. I've seen
2: them linked up. Yeah. and if yeah, you, I've sort absolutely of, seen sort that. Of, but don't I've pull them looked... apart because, you know, that wouldn't be fair. But you, if you look, you can see it's like a white, mm, these yeah. two white yep. rupee things. Yeah. yeah. So that's their penis. That's different from the love dart situation. Mm. But yeah. what's the love
1: dart doing? Is that you say that's yeah? Programming I think it just the
2: programs f- the their hard drive. I think it, yeah. is that saying like
1: you're a virgin, doof, love dart. Now you know what we know, and
2: yeah, give I it think so. I, to be honest, I don't get really into know. It? That's,
1: Does anyone so know? Strange. Has anyone ever been a snail?
2: Um, I reckon Michael O'Shea would know. He's like the snail guy. He's the snail guy. I think that's his name.
1: Do you know what word I learnt tonight? Head on his stick.
2: Hedonistic
1: Hedonistic You learnt that word. Yeah, Chris said it a couple <laughs> yeah, of times I've heard and that I word thought, so many times I don't know
0: times. what it means There used to be a rave called hedonistic That's really? why I know it yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't I be, think I just... you
2: are hedonistic I, think I can't you believe must be hedonistic. you don't know that word <laughs> I didn't
1: know that word But it means wow. engaged in the pursuit of pleasure Yeah Sensually self-indulged
0: We used to supply the sound system to a rave The organisers were called hedonistic That's
1: a great name for a rave mm. There you go
2: yeah. Still, so back to
1: insects. Yeah,
2: whatever. Snaps <laughs> are like <laughs> Oh, sorry. Gastropods. But, um, yeah, so... All right, Chris. So, <laughs> so, so that's that's what they do. And earthworms, yeah, they don't dart each other, but they, they do sort of do this, like, you know, beautiful love knot thing where they, you know, t- t- twist and tie each other into... Literally into a bit of a love knot, and then they both snails have like a it's like a saddle and uh, it's like you would have seen it's like a collar you know when you sorry snails worms when you look at a worm Mm, you can see there's like a collar on Mm -hmm. the worm so all of their reproductive bits are under that collar and when they reproduce they kind of like twist together and those two collars sort of like roll together and they roll down each worm And then pop off the end and that's the egg. Mm. So those collars are not fixed. No. Wow.
1: But they don't come completely off?
2: Yeah, the egg, like an egg ends up, that's kind of like the collar sort of rolls down the worm and then bang, there's the egg. Oh, it comes completely off? Um, No, I think the collar stays, but the egg Mm -hmm. sort of comes out of it. Well, that's a good question. Everybody, I want you to go home and... Look at your earthworms. Well, I did want to mention cuttlefish because they are pretty amazing. So cuttlefish are like the drag queens of the ocean, I think. So you, you can Google this if you're listening and you, you, you know, you're know really fascinated because it is fascinating. Or you can um, book in with Carl Childer from Exploring Marine Sanctuaries to go and actually explore the giant cuttlefish at Point Lowly in Wyala he's your man for that and um yeah so cuttlefish for a start they engage in fisting that's their kind of reproductive strategy <laughs> interesting. um interesting right do they have fists? Uh, they have tentacles yeah they kind of have so they have tentacles and then they have two um
1: or are they the two tentacles and everything else is a limb
2: yeah i think that's it i think they have I think we say they have eight tentacles, but they actually only have two.
1: Because tentacles have the suction cups just on the end. So opticals don't actually have any tentacles.
2: <laughs> yeah, so they, so, so they have two tentacles. So cuttlefish have two tentacles. And then the other, I think there's maybe ten, are arms, right? So what we always call tentacles aren't really tentacles. And on the end of each tentacle, there's like a round sort of... And they use that to fist the female to deposit the sperm into her, but that's not the interesting bit because you know everybody knows about fisting. Um, (laughs) 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 and you can google that if you're (laughs) 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 actually Google that, yeah. No, so so what is interesting about cuttlefish is the way they use drag. And I think this is really very queer. So so what they do, right, as you know, they're masters of camouflage, cuttlefish. Um, and they, they're they very quick. If you watch a cuttlefish swimming over, a, a, you know, the bottom of the sea and the habitat under them is changing, so it might be green at one minute and then sand at the next minute and then brown rocks at the next minute, and they will change their colour instantaneously Like a chameleon, really. They're the chameleons of the ocean. They're amazing. But they can also do that bilaterally. So let's say you're a big male cuttlefish, right? Then what you want to do is you want to get all of the female cuttlefish, or at least one, if not several, underneath you, and then you guard them, right? And you'll display your brightest manly, you know, patterns to fend off other males. But if you're just a little male... The chances of you getting the opportunity to mate with a a nice female um, in the face of all these big, burly, manly cuttlefish, your chances are pretty limited, right? So, what the little male cuttlefish will do is they will bilaterally it's nine display. Oh, <laughs> thank
0: you very much. <laughs> I can't
2: stop my computer telling me the time. <laughs>
0: I'm glad it did it It sensed that you've gone on far too (laughs)
2: long
1: (laughs) Clearly your machine's got somewhere to be
2: So yeah So what they do is they Display very submissive female colours To the male Cuttlefish Right so that he thinks that They're a defenceless female in need Of his shelter and protection But they will display Male colours to the Female cuttlefish On the other side And what that means is that the male cuttlefish will then um, allow that small male to um, enter his fold and he will sit over that male and protect it because he thinks it's a female. But as soon as that male cuttlefish is underneath him, where the other female is, he will mate with the female Mm. that the male has been um, protecting.
1: That's fascinating, isn't it? And the girls get the big dominant male genes and the sneaky male genes too
2: well they yeah i don't know um i don't know how many times cuttlefish mate but i know the males don't get to mate too many times before they die like they they're they're pretty you know that's the whole point of them they have a pretty short life cycle they it's a small window that you get to go and watch them isn't it yeah and and they only live for i don't know if every species only lives for a year if their cycle is 12 months or 18 months or what it is i'm not i'm i'm not that intimate with the the ins and outs of cuttlefish but so their life cycle
0: isn't that long
2: at all no i think it's only like you know for most species it's like one year or two years and then they they
0: grow that rapidly and then they they mate
2: yeah then they mate and they Mm. die they're like antichinous Mm.
1: yeah they, they don't don't do a lot so they're a marsupial (laughs) 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 (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 Has anyone ever kept cattlefish in captivity with any success? Um
2: well a long time ago when I was uh running the Saint Kilda Mangrove Trail, which is now part of the dolphin sanctuary and the bird thingamajiggy, um
1: Migratory Bird Sanctuary?
2: Yeah. I just
1: couldn't
2: think of what it's called, but um yeah, so so when I was um, – I, I was out there for like 10 years and in that time I got to engage quite a bit with Sadi Aquatic Sciences and I do recall that there was someone at Sadi who had managed to um, breed them and keep some of them in captivity and they had a great big – so you know the old Marineland yeah. site? Yeah. Yeah, so the old Marineland tanks are still there and Sadi – as far as I know, Sardi is still there as well mm. um, in that old Marineland site because obviously it's all set up to bring in salt water and hold lots of salt water. And, um, yeah, I remember going there once, I can't remember why, um, I think I was looking for a freezer for a dead pelican. Oh, that's what it would have been. Yeah, that's what it would have been. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> While I was there, I remember it was back in the days of Karen Edivane and Andrew Dalgetty. And um, they, were, they were doing amazing work in mangroves and, you know, um, they're, they're both pretty cool marine scientists. And I remember them showing me the cuttlefish tank. So I imagine by now, I mean, that's 20 years ago. So I imagine by now that someone's really cracked the... Are
1: there any small species of cuttlefish?
2: Yeah, heaps, heaps, mm. yep.
1: That might be worth uh, looking, looking at because they're mm. fascinating little things.
2: They're fascinating. There, there would be more than a handful of people researching them by now
1: one of the things like when you talked about as an educator you want people to understand the mechanisms that make life work yeah Um, yeah. how do you feel about i mean i know that when we went to my place and we're looking at all those different species of invertebrates but then we're surrounded by monoculture farmland i mean you'd know just as well as anyone that we're losing so many species particularly insects are getting a lot of coverage at the moment people are saying we've lost crazy amounts of insects from from the world because of pesticides and land clearing and monoculture and like when you've got a monoculture area things flower and then they don't and then you've got nothing flowering
2: yeah yeah that's
1: a big issue isn't it when you've got a a diverse ecosystem there's always something flowering you've always got you know
2: well i read something interesting the other day too about light pollution and the impact of light pollution on invertebrates that, that kind of makes sense to me. I'd like to see a bit more data before I'd be willing to march in the streets. But, yeah, that, that kind of makes a lot of sense to me, the idea that for a lot of inverts there, um, world is completely befuddled by all of these lights that we turn on all the time. So, you know, in, in, and you see it straight away. If you go out into the middle of nowhere and you shine a light, Insects just come from every direction. Mm. Um, I mean, that's why we use light sheets to um, attract certain species of insects. It's not just moths that are attracted to light. It's I reckon it would be at least half the insects on the planet are attracted to light.
1: And you guys had different frequency lights yeah, to, yeah. to attract yeah. different so species. Yeah, so different
2: white lights and UV lights and, yeah. But... Um, but any light will attract insects, as as you would know. You'd have nights up here if you've got your back lights on; they would just be crawling with all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we have that back window
0: um, with moths. A lot of moths on that back window if we if we turn a light on. Yeah. Um, but like every uh, like, it was two weeks ago, we had swarms of termites.
2: Mm. Just
0: absolutely cover yep. that back window and our netting and everything. Just swarms of termites. We saw that yeah. too because we every were, year we get it.
2: That was yeah. a that was a Friday night and um, oh we, yeah yeah it was yeah, yeah and we were down at um, Bowdoin in this big old building and they were all inside and I was really excited because I thought they were ants so I collected a whole heap of them but then I on closer inspection they were termites, termites. yeah. Um, which have been reclassified in the cockroaches? Huh? What? Termites.
1: They were in the same group as cockroaches.
2: Yeah, so they, they were originally classified in the in the ants.
1: Hymenoptera.
2: Hymenoptera, but now they're um, classified in Blattidae. Blattidae. Wow. Which is cockroaches. Which makes oh. sense because you know cockroaches recycle wood. That's what termites do. So yeah. Wow. Yeah, Mark, who is your man for that? <laughs> Well, That's it. He's the one who actually told me that. Wow. Um, yeah, so there you go. But they've got a really interesting sex life. You know, they, they have a social hierarchy like, like ants do, where they have a queen and, um, you know, and that queen is controlling who gets to be a female, who gets to be a male, who, you know. So, like, all of those worker ants are generally um, underdeveloped females. So, and then the Queen will produce a certain number of males who then get to, you know, mate with the new Queen. So not not with her because she's already mated, but... Um, you know when the new queens are produced and they go on their nuptial flight, which is what those termites. Would I was have going been to doing. say, what, yeah. what,
0: why, are, why is it that once a year, at certain times a year, we get those swarms of termites?
2: Yeah, so that's a nuptial flight, and that that's triggered by um, humidity and t- like that night was quite moist. It was raining a little bit. Mm. It was still perfect weather for a nuptial flight, and um, and of course all those termites are light attracted. So um, you would have found that what they were doing was swarming around your lights. And so the theory is that for things that are light attracted, let's say they're on their nuptial flight and they're, um, what they're trying to do is reproduce. And, you know, it's a, like an orgy, I suppose. There's lots of insects employ that strategy. So they're trying to reproduce, but, oh, look at the pretty lights. And suddenly that's all they can think about is those pretty lights, and they will swarm to the lights. And, of course, for things like termites and a lot of the ants as well, as soon as they land, they drop their wings. So if they land and they haven't mated, um, they, they're they probably not going to be able to take off again. Some of them don't drop their wings until they've mated and they land. Do they mate but, in the air? Yeah, but they mate in the air. So... Um, I know that um, a friend of mine collected me some Amicia ants that were swarming all over their building and generally speaking once they come to land they will have, it's because they've mated and they'll drop their wings and then they'll go and start their own colony. They'll start laying eggs and they'll produce workers and then those workers will, you know, do their job and before you know it you've got an ant colony. But of those five queens that my friend Sarah collected for me, um, they all dropped their wings because they'd come to land, but none of them had been mated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so that there, there's a really good example of where light pollution and buildings in the way have um, impacted, you know, on that on that population of Mimesia ants and probably on most of those termites as well.
0: I'm now thinking I need a pest controller to come here because downstairs on my back sliding doors was just full of wings. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yep. So... But mm. you, you can't... <laughs> no, no, you've got to have... Termites are not interested in... They're not interested in metal. They're, they're no. really only interested in timber and that timber needs to be quite damp and... Um, there needs to be a bit of white rot fungus in there yeah. they're quite they're quite picky
0: it was when we were when i used to do pest control it was one of the checks was we had a humidity meter that we'd put against walls to see how wet it was behind the walls yeah yeah. That so be one of the really things, things to say yeah that's yeah. okay you you're <laughs> high you're prone to getting termites because you've actually got a damp problem it's a
2: bit yeah i find it a bit Difficult because you know the chemicals that they use are residual in the soil for like twenty years. But
0: yeah, no, no. I, I used to work. want
2: to come back every year. I used to
0: work for a company that doesn't exist now, Eco Pest Control, and he was dead against um chemicals. Ah, oh, he's ground. the guy
2: that uses the traps. Yeah, he yeah. uses
0: the traps. Yep. It's completely safe, one hundred percent I thought they safe. did exist. Uh, Exoterra is what they're called. Oh okay. Um no, so so he would not spray if someone rung up and because there are a certain amount of people that say no I want spray. Yeah, I want you oh, to yeah, yeah, my them, I soil around my house it's And most people don't um, realize that no.
2: um when a termite company attends your property, they're meant to actually leave a little sticker in your meter box in your electricity yep. meter yeah, box. Yeah, we have to do that. Yep. That um tells you when your property was last treated for termites and obviously you know about that because you were a pest controller, mm. but I've never met anyone else who knows about that except mm. for me because I'm, you know, like a dog with a bone. Mm. But, um, yeah, so theoretically you should be able to look in your meter box and see that your place was checked, mm. you know, that your place was treated 10 years ago yeah. you've got
0: another 10 years before you need to worry about i would it. But never use that, those chemicals they, they're just terrible thing
2: w- we've got people in our street who get it done every single year because their insurance company won't in keep you know their insurance is invalid if they don't get it mm. checked every year no, and of course every year they, they redo it it's yeah. crazy to me mm. and i'm out the front you know banging my saucepan going get that spray off my fence
1: did i hear that there's hundreds of species of termites here in the mount lofty ranges and there's only a couple that are likely to eat the wood in your house there's only yeah. three
0: three or four in south australia i think that are likely to eat the house one of them and i, I couldn't remember the name now if i tried but one of is really prolific like it will chew the shit out of your house really quickly but the baits that they use uh, this is horrible. sorry chris
2: No, it's all right. The baits that they use now
0: are, um, it's all eco-friendly. It's all good for the earth and and that. But the the baits that they use, actually the first thing they do is they destroy the mouth parts of the termite. So the termite can't actually eat anything.
2: But I want to point out that (laughs) that's that's, the the baits in the traps, not the sprays. No, it's not the spray. No, the spray
0: just kills shit and kills your soil. Yeah, um, it kills and, and everything. everything. And it does
2: the same yeah, thing to vertebrates as it does to invertebrates. It's horrible. And I just want to say if you're like me, there's not that many people like me, to be fair, but um, I always, whenever one of my neighbours is getting that done, because I'm, you know, I am like a dog with a bone. I um, ring the company and I insist that they email me their, um, their data sheets. data safety <laughs> ma- <laughs> manual yeah, just sheet, <laughs> because legally they have to. If you yeah. ask for it, they have yeah. to. Well, and seriously, when you read it, mm. when you read what they're spraying you just go
0: oh there was the odd there was the odd job where we used to have to um pump powder up in the roof spaces because gavin was very much against using stuff that environmentally did any damage yeah he was a great guy um but every now and then we'd have to pump something just to make a quick impact and i would have to go home and shower after because my whole face would just be burning yeah mm. from those chemicals so you, yeah. you imagine what they are actually doing um yeah i used to have a reaction to them it's part of the reason why i stopped
1: yeah, that's unreal isn't it mm. so we don't know why invertebrates are attracted to light do we do we, no. we know that? i can speak for myself i don't well like moths
0: moths coming out at night and then going straight to the nearest light Come out during the day. Yeah. <laughs> Get that into it. Yeah. <laughs> Come out but it's the not down today. to that, is it? It's... <laughs> what, what are they following, Chris?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. Thank isn't you. It? <laughs> it's it's because they, and then maybe there's more than one reason. Mm. But as I understand it, it's because they actually navigate using the moon, and so they think your lights are the moon. That's basically so it's it's got a word it's called um transverse orientation so they navigate by flying at a constant angle that's relative to a distant light source in this case the moon um but if there's a man-made light then the angle to the light source changes as the moth flies by and that messes up their
0: whole orientation so we're literally messing with the moths when we put a light on
2: yeah, yeah, totally, mm. totally messing with them. Yeah, and that's why this, um, you know, this study's come out saying, suggesting that. Well, I don't know if it's a study or, you know, a Facebook meme, but um. But no, it's it's a paper I think that was produced to say you know we need to consider that um, artificial light sources uh, could also be a big reason why there are insects disappearing. However, there's a whole heap of insects that I think are also becoming less in number and they're not necessarily insects that navigate using um, using um, transverse orientation. But but there might be insects that feed on insects that use transverse orientation. So, you know, and, that, and that's the thing is if you've got moths, for example, which do navigate that way, and they are the basis of the food web for a whole heap of other invertebrates and vertebrates, like you think about antichinus and, you know, all of those little dunnets, all of those little desiurids and things that um, eat, you know, bugs. Then Ge- Geckos. Yeah, Then mm. and geckos, yeah, for sure, geckos almost exist on moths, don't they? Um, so those sort of things are going to be heavily impacted by any huge reduction in the biomass of species that do use that transverse orientation.
1: It'd be fantastic to have a light care for years, even just as a trial period at yeah, of the year.
0: There's so many people that wouldn't have a clue what we're really talking about. And, and, till, and, and I wouldn't have coming from England and then staying in cities for the whole of my life. But then we, like we we was out in Alice Springs, mm. and you look up and yeah. it's just astonishing I mean, when you yeah. actually see that sky that's up there oh, above yeah. every city in the world. Yeah, that's right. But you just can't—you yeah. can't stand in Adelaide or even really where we are now and look up and see that as clearly as if you go somewhere where there is mm. no light pollution.
1: Well, Rex made a really good point. We had Rex Nindorf from Alice Springs mm. um, on the show, and he—he he talked about we—we we, we talk about the benefits of being around nature and looking into wilderness and trees and things. And it's no different looking up at the sky. Mm. And it's there. We've got the amazing vista above us every night but we don't see it because of the light and it is amazing
2: mm. like it's have just... you read um dark emu bruce pascoe's book
1: i keep hearing about it i think i even
2: have it but no ah uh, i'll lend it to you i haven't actually finished reading it but um i had to put it down for a couple of weeks when i first got it because just the first the forward <laughs> just blew my mind. Just the fool. Yeah. And it really, um, it really freaked me out actually, because, you know, I like to think I'm a bit of an out of the box thinker and I like to think that I think, you know, like I don't sleep, so I've got to do something. And, um, the very first bit, and I'm paraphrasing, so, um, don't have a go at me if I get this wrong, but yeah, well, you haven't read it. So, (laughs) but, um, the very first bit of it, um, talks about what the dark emu is, right? And it's um, it's not the stars themselves, right? It's the spaces between the stars. It's the it's what you see in the spaces between the stars. So like you've got all these constellations of stars, like Orion or you know whatever. I'm sure Indigenous people have different names for them, obviously. But um, so there's all those star star map type constellations but then the dark emu is a, a constellation that you see in the dark spaces between the stars how crazy is that like that just poof, mind mm. blown and that 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 really resonated with me as a as a younger person i, I used to write a lot and I used to write a lot about you know the spaces between your heartbeats and you know what goes on in those in those moments where you're you know you're sort of waiting for time to pass and you you're counting the days of you know like you've broken up with someone and it's broken your heart and you've got to get through that you know and you're literally counting those spaces between your heartbeats and and a second seems like a week sometimes you know and um yeah, and I just thought, wow, I've never thought about the spaces between the
1: that's interesting the
2: stars. It blew me away. Yeah,
1: it being a drummer, I used to play in bands when I was younger, and it's all about yeah, you're hitting this and you're hitting that, but it's about the it's gaps the in
2: space, between. Yeah, it's the space, yeah, yeah. So you understand what I mean about those spaces between your heartbeats, right? Like mm. you, you know, the, your concept of time um, is all relative, and so like you know that that thing when you've got a you know when you're like heartbroken do you remember your first heartbreak and i just gotta say it was a drummer <laughs> <laughs> called adrian <laughs> <laughs> no but um it's all right we're friends on facebook now it's great um so yeah no no but it like i just remember feeling like you know i could i couldn't breathe and i was gonna have to learn to breathe and i was you know and i and i thought okay i've got to i've got to count the space between my heartbeats and try and somehow make it (laughs) take less time you know Mm -hmm. and eventually it did take less time but you know and and everything went back to normal but for a while there i thought i've i've cracked it i've like slowed time down Mm -hmm. you know so now like it's
1: just focusing on your breath and Almost like mindfulness meditation.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that's the only way to get through something like that. And but then I think once you do get through it, you realise you you're probably never gonna have your heart broken again. Like you're you're gonna once you realise you can survive that, you're gonna survive it every time. I think, you know, and become a heartless old cow. <laughs> that's right my... <laughs> so that's how it happens. that's how it happens
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would be I, a great I blame the over... drummers of the world
2: yeah, <laughs> right.
0: Whoa. that would be a great bit of mindfulness wouldn't it looking up in somewhere like alice springs or and and just laying
1: there looking up at those stars it really would, would, would when yeah. we were kids mates yeah my mate phil um, and I we used to just lay out the back on banana lounges with no purpose. And once a week, we would just lay out there for hours and just look up at the at the stars. Mm. Yeah, something captivating about it. I think we've lost that connection, most of us. When I mean, yeah. we say we've lost a connection with nature. Well, that's a big part of it somehow.
2: Yeah, and understanding, you know. And I suppose that's the thing. Is like, it, as humans, we've we've sort of lost our way. I think in terms of that connectiveness and that is partly because we live in cities we don't see the stars we see some of them but we don't see all of them and in adelaide it's not so bad you Mm. know but if you're in london or los angeles or somewhere like that
0: you just went for the L names then yeah
2: Yeah. Mm, well Mm. i've never i've never (laughs) i've i've um i'm so committed to saving the planet i've never been on an international flight but um yeah, so I've uh, yeah, so I've never been to any of those places. You should have but... gone abroad,
0: really, because you made no difference to the planet up
2: to now. I went on a piano cruise to Fiji when I was seven. Um, <laughs> 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 that, that, counts. A that counts. <laughs> yeah, mum and dad took us on a piano cruise. Oh, was very we at... it was very cool because, you know, it wasn't wrecked back then. Yeah, we might so... have to take
0: that out. They've just gone bankrupt in Europe.
2: Who, Maybe, p, p- you know. Oh no.
0: <laughs>
2: but yeah, I so I, I think um I think when you you know, I remember quite vividly, and again it was another thing when I was on the dairy farm that I talked about and um I was I would have been about seven. It was the first time I'd gone there to stay, you know, and I was, like, quite little to go away on my own like that. And um, and it was a really hot night and it was pre-air conditioners. You know, people on farms didn't really have air conditioners necessarily and so we all slept outside and um, it was the first time I saw a satellite and it was the first time I'd sort of been around people who really... Knew anything about constellations and stuff like that, and that that was mind blowing. And we were, it was at Meningi, and um, there were just so many stars. I'd never experienced the sky without light pollution before, Mm. and I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And you, yeah, you, I think if you imagine the impact that losing those connections has had on humans, it does make sense that that's had an impact on invertebrates and, and other species you know
0: yeah it'd have to wouldn't it even yeah, more so, sure. i think yeah like especially things that rely on you know tracking through the moon and like moths and things yeah or even but,
2: scorpions yeah. scorpions mm, yeah. we think scorpions um navigate using star maps and mm. stars and stuff
1: star mm. i've heard the same thing said about some of the ants too like the inch ants
0: Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't surprise me at all. And these are all quite like the, the, the beginnings of that food chain of everything as well. So you start messing up with a lot of those small things. It's it's going to have that bigger picture thing,
2: isn't it? Mm. Well, yeah, because, you know, I said before that if there's one true God, it's fungus. But um, the disciples of that one true God have to be the ants, I think. They're the, they're the you know, the, the, the ants are really engaging with fungus on a very intimate level some of them are farming fungus most of them are um certainly at least very aware of fungal networks and stuff like that so it's really interesting
1: the biggest life form on the planet is a fungus i hope they do a better yeah job of saving the planet than
0: what we did Fungy. when they take over no ants oh ants. Right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can't
1: make it worse yeah
2: i think they are masters of the universe well they
1: have health care why need it. Do so we vote for ants?
2: Yeah, so there's some, so some other very cool ways of, you know, we've talked about things that just bud off a bit of themselves and grow a new thing, and a really good example of that is sea stars. So sea stars can reproduce just by breaking off an arm and then, you know, that arm can regrow under certain circumstances. So like they're
1: what people sometimes call starfish?
2: What people incorrectly call starfish, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or if you like, echinoderms, that's there phylum I think yeah so so sea stars are what some people call starfish and they're pretty amazing they can just just grow if they get broken into pieces those pieces can grow into new sea stars I think they have to have a little bit of the center part break off as well I don't think they could like break the tip of an arm off but it has to be a good solid you know meaty break and I have heard a story I don't know if it's true but when the Japanese sea star was first discovered in foreign waters, I won't say which foreign waters, but when it was first covered in foreign waters that may or may not have been around here, there was a big sort of clean-up thing that happened where they went and manually, um, I actually can't remember where this was, I think it was somewhere in Australia though or offshore. It's not the Crown of thorn starfish? No, the, okay. the Japanese sea star. Okay. And um, they manually collected all these sea stars, then they ground them up you know, went we'll fix you, sea stars, and they, they released all of that back into the water. And, of course, what happened was, like, a gazillion more sea stars grew and became a bit of an issue. So, wow. yeah, that's just something I heard. But, um, yeah, so that's an interesting... I hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. I, that's a long time ago. That's going back a long time. Mm.
0: Regeneration of a complete being from a limb. Yeah. Or an offcut.
2: Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I guess that's what the planarians do, but yeah, it is pretty crazy, isn't it? So the other thing I want to talk about in terms of, you know, very queer sort of goings-on is that there are quite a lot of mostly insects or mostly arthropods... So things with an exoskeleton, not necessarily insects because I've seen yabbies and things like that exhibit this, but there's something called ganandromorphism which is when you have an animal that is bilaterally female on one side and male on the other side or sometimes it can be mosaic canandromorphism where they have you know so if it was a butterfly the top left wing would be female the bottom right wing would be female and the top right wing would be male and the bottom left wing would be male and if if you google that canandromorphs they're really pretty cool to look at so you know and, and in terms of like invertebrate collectors like specimen collectors that's often like the holy grail of insect specimens is a gonandromorph where you've got you know female completely female representation on one side and then completely male on the other side that's that's pretty cool that that happens very commonly in butterflies but i've seen it in stick insects i've seen it in crustaceans i've seen it in katydids why um, would that happen because they're intersex, so because they're, because they have both male and female genetic material, mm. like chromosomes. Crazy, though. Mm. Yeah, so if That's you strange. get a ganandromorph, I've never bred one, but they're, you know, they're worth a lot of money as specimens. I know Jack Cash and Pash from the Australian Insect Farm bred a ganandromorph Philium montithii, so I hate to think what that would be. Wow. Worth, yeah, because that's a rare enough specimen anyway. Yeah, that's the true um, leaf insect. And probably the last thing I want to talk about are aphids because I've just been on a bit of a mission with aphids because um, I feed them to lots of things. And when they're abundant, they're really abundant. And it's really interesting to look at aphids and kind of go, wow, how did you go from like two aphids to... 2,000 aphids in only a couple of days, and that's because a, a female aphid, so they have two kind of sections to their life cycle, I guess, and uh, one is where the female aphid reproduces parthenogenetically and um, just reproduce female, you know, clones of herself. But those female clones of her, of her will already be pregnant with their... Babies, and those babies are already pregnant with their babies. What? <laughs> it's washed Oh, wow. Yeah. So when she gives birth, she's giving birth to an already pregnant female whose babies are already pregnant as well.
1: So she's almost a great great grandmother.
2: Yeah. She's so she's she. giving birth to her great great grandchildren as she as she speaks, and um, yeah. And so they very very quickly build up their numbers, and then suddenly something weird happens and they then start giving birth to males which is just freaky because theoretically you shouldn't be able that to do that work, if you're pathogenetic yeah. um but then at some point something changes and she then becomes a sexual reproducer where she mates with males and reproduces sexually so that then she can lay eggs and those eggs then over winter and become the next generation how freaky is that
1: that's really
0: really freaky do they seem to know when they need to switch to males
2: i think it's triggered by it's a seasonal trigger so it's like something to do with you know so they're probably just sick of
0: all the females talking
2: (laughs) (laughs) i don't want you to think that the men are in charge of this steve because they're so obviously not (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, I think that is the common thread throughout this whole, um, you know, queer sex life thing is that it's quite clear that females are running the show. Ah, (laughs) rub (laughs) it.
1: Well, nature finds a way. But every
0: now and then they need to produce some males.
2: Um, there is one insect whose uh, sperm are actually bigger than the female that it impregnates.
0: I thought we were finished then.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a fruit fly anyway, one of the Drosophilas, which um, I breed to feed to my praying mantises. Anyway, it's, its sperm is six centimetres long and that is 20 times longer than the actual animal.
1: That seems a little bit excessive.
2: Does doesn't it? It's in a coil though. So if if that was a man, right, that would be the equivalent of a man having sperm as long as two tennis courts. Some beetles also like you know. We've talked a bit about um, sadomasochism. Have we? Well <laughs> I haven't used that word but you know there are there are there's all kinds of sm going on in the bug world there's you know we talked about snails producing their love dart to stab each other but there are there are all kinds of freaky stabbings that go on and often like you know they' they're like literally a stab in the dark so if you get stabbed in the right place you'll be impregnated and if you get stabbed in the wrong place you'll die there are beetles who have like so you would be familiar with this cuz you guys breed reptiles. So you know a reptile has a hemipene and that hemipene has like hardcore like Barbie things on the end of it to hold them in. Hold them in. Um so beetles make a hemipene look like a squishy toy. So some beetles have like literally a club covered in spikes. Like yeah. A base yeah and like a mace and that's why if they mate with the female before her genitals are fully mature they just ruin her that's so
1: many things good way to so many it. things <laughs> guys if you're still with us <laughs> chris that was amazing thank you so much for taking us on that journey um, <laughs> that, that was a journey,
2: the, it was a journey it? r-rated yeah. bugs and slugs not for don't don't book that one for your kindy
1: guys thank you for listening